called uh, Bangalore. Obviously, as you see me, I wasn't born in Sweden, you see. <laughs> uh, so I come from the southern part of India, and India is a complex country, a country of 1.2 billion plus peoples. In fact, uh, India is also referred to as the world's largest lab for religions in, in many ways because that's the land of all kinds of religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and many other isms and schisms are out there in that world. And so having been born and raised in that culture, in fact, the street where I grew up, uh, on one end of the street there was a temple, and on the other end there was a mosque. So every mornings, uh, we Indians, we didn't need any alarm clocks to wake us up because the temple bells will go off at 4 o'clock, and, and the Muslim mosques will blare out their prayers at 5, each one competing to wake the people up in the mornings. And so there I was listening to the bells of the temples and then to the mosques and prayers going on. And both are different religions. And, and here we are, the, the only Christian family, because my parents um, were not Christians. In their early years, they, they came to the Lord in a very dramatic way. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to them in visions and in dreams, which seems to be the most um, dominant way in which parts of Middle East, parts of Asia, Africa, much of Latin America, people are seeing the Lord, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in reality. And so having come from that culture, and when I came to the Western world, now, I've made my home here in America the last 15 years, but I crisscrossed both sides of the world, and I, and I observe uh, America now uh, in a slightly different lens. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, don't ask a fish what the water is like, because it is just the environment in which it lives. Ask same, in, in, in like manner, don't ask an American what America is like. Ask a Chinese or, or, or ask an Indian what America is like. There's a, there's a different lens through which we are able to see what's happening here in this part of the world. And uh, five or six years ago, John Meekham uh, the staff writer at the, at the Newsweek magazine uh, wrote a story, and the cover story of the magazine was titled, Post-Christian America. And in that, he said these words. He said, while we remain a nation decisively shaped by religious faith, our politics and our culture are in the main less influenced by movements and arguments of an explicitly Christian character than they were many years ago. And then he says, I think this is a good thing, good for our political culture, which as the American founders saw is complex and charged enough without attempting to compel or coerce religious belief or observance. What he was saying was 
that America has become so post-Christian, it doesn't reflect the same ethos it once had. That is because today in America, we have many religions that are now in our backyard. They're all now in every small towns of America. I was surprised when I first came to America. Um, I saw uh, Hindu temples here, and I saw mosques here. And, and, and back in India, I thought America is largely Christian, which it is. And, and, and then to see so many religions that are now here, and, and, and never in America's history Today, we would be talking so much about a religion called Islam because it is always in the news. And somehow we have to grapple with what these religions are saying. Now, this morning, um, I tend to talk long and, and <laughs> because back in India, uh, church services uh, starts at 9.30. And you know how long it goes? It goes on till 5 o'clock. So it's, it's hard to contain an Indian in, in less time. But I'm going to do my best, and I'll spill a little bit after the service into the teaching time too. Jesus, among other gods, is a complex subject, and I want to give you three ideas, and I'll sustain that with four questions. The three ideas that I want to reflect briefly is religious pluralism. Secondly... Christian inclusivism. Thirdly, Christian exclusivism, and I'll define that. These three ideas I want to sustain with four questions. Origin, condition, salvation, destination. What is the origin of man? What's the condition of man? What's the salvation of man? And what's the destination of man? These four questions I will sustain them with these three ideas. But before that, there's a story. A story about a young man who was looking for a job. And since money was tight and it was a hard time in the economy, wherever he went, he couldn't find a job. And as he was going from city to city, he was bored and tired and disappointed and finally comes to a town where he is now much uh, <clears throat> disillusioned the fact that he tried so much and he thought to himself, let me just kill the time today. And as he was ambling around in that town, he saw a zoo and he thought to himself, why not just go watch some animals for today? And then he walks in and, and to his surprise, he sees uh, a posting on the bulletin that says uh, there's a job. And he wonders what kind of a job is that? And apparently that zoo had lost a large monkey and they were looking for someone to play the role of a monkey. And he thought to himself, what kind of a job is that? They said, well, 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 we'll outfit you like a monkey because in about a month or two, we are expecting a group of high schoolers going to come here and we want to entertain the, uh, the crowd. So we'll teach you, we'll train you how monkeys uh, behave in the wild. So he, uh, he goes in and he thought for himself, since money was tight, he thought I may as well just take this job uh, and, and find what it is. And so now he's been outfitted uh, in the garb of a monkey and there he is. Uh, swinging from one pole 
to the other pole. And then suddenly he loses balance and falls into the lion's den next door. And he screams, help me, help me, only to hear the lion crouch next to him and say, shut up and sit down or else we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> Both the lion and the monkey were only garbs and masks. And once you peel the masks and the layers, you get to see the reality. And I want to peel some masks this morning and showcase to you what the reality of other religions are. One philosopher said it wonderfully. He said, life without God is like an unsharpened pencil. It has no point. Every religion in our world today is in pursuit of somehow connecting man to God, and therefore they are constructing ideas. And I'm always puzzled, and I, even to this day, uh, it excites me the majesty uh, when Jesus in John chapter 14, he talks about to the disciples, uh, he says, uh, guys, don't, don't be worried, don't let your heart be troubled, uh, because I'm going to go someplace, I'm going to the Father's house, and I'm going to be preparing mansions for you. The disciples are, are now a little worried where Jesus is going to go, he said, the Lord is comforting them and said, don't worry, don't lose your heart. I'm going to go to a place and I'll prepare a place for you. And when I go and I'll come back and I'll take you there. And then Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 5, pronounces this verse, which is the anchor verse for us Christians and which is the verse that challenges other religions in the world today. What is it? Verse 5, in John chapter 14, Jesus says, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. Thomas, by the way, was the skeptic, wasn't it? It was the doubting Thomas and it was the man who always wanted to make it sure. And is it you, Lord? I want to feel your hand. And, and so even skeptics can, will find their answers in Jesus. Healthy skepticism is okay as long as your intent is the pursuit of truth. In those three lines that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he made an exclusive statement. And so therefore, I say this. Christianity, by definition and proposition, is exclusive. Christianity, by definition and by proposition, is an exclusive faith. And such a statement runs contrary to the culture in which we live today. It's a culture of tolerance. It's a culture of peace. And nobody wants to hear people say to them, look, I've got it and you don't have the way. It's a hard thing to say today in America's culture. I have run into places and people, Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus in America who, who take offense at that. 
they ask me, how, how do you, how dare you make pronouncements that, that Christianity has the way and we don't? It is important for us to understand what actually makes our faith unique. Why you believe what you believe is supremely important. And this is where Christian apologetics, worldview studies, which helps us to think deeply, will open up answers to those questions. I said, I said this morning to you three ideas. Number one, religious pluralism. What is it? Today in America's culture, we have so many religions, and this is a pluralistic culture in which many faiths, many cultures are coexisting. Haven't you seen that sticker behind cars, bumper stickers that says coexist? Coexist. Jews and Christians and Muslims and Buddhists, all of us have to coexist because we are a culture of peace and tolerance. I have a hard time with that. And it's complex. It is sensitive. There's a lot of moods involved in it. Because people get easily offended. People get offended because the way you are saying some things. And it is politically a correct call. You have to be politically correct. I say you got to be spiritually correct first before becoming politically correct. Today in America, never in history have we seen a profusion of Islam and Hinduism. Hinduism is a very covert religion. By that I mean it's not there in the forefront, but it is very insidious in the way it seeps into the American culture. It is in the academics, in the universities, in the colleges, the idea of transcendence, the, uh, the practice of yoga. And I know a lot of Christians have, have uh, differing views on yoga. I mean, that's a whole talk by itself. And I come from India, and I've seen yoga and all that it does there. And I still wonder why people in the West would be so fascinated by these practices because it hasn't delivered its goods back home. Why do you think it's going to do something for you here? Hinduism is not necessarily a proselytizing religion, but if it were so, what are the missionary arms of this religion? There are two. One is transcendental meditation, and the other is yoga. Transcendental meditation is innocent. Who doesn't want to meditate? Who doesn't want to get into such practices? It is now garbed in a new form of practice called mindfulness, which is now actually thought in public schools. But they are all esoteric Eastern practices deeply embedded in an Eastern worldview which doesn't recognize the Christian conviction of God. And then the profusion of yoga in every small town of America which has now fascinated the world and the Western Europe in particular, where people seem to have more time on a Wednesday evening to go to a yoga class than to come to a Bible study. And I know of churches 
where Wednesday morning evening services are replaced with yoga. So Hinduism is very covered. You don't, you don't feel its sting. But it's like the bite of a serpent. It's slow, steady, but it does inject its poison inside of you. And very soon you will realize that you have been now sedated with that religion and you can't come out of it. One man said to me, it is like this. When you get into Hinduism, it's like walking inside of a cave. There's only an entry inside, but there's no exit outside. You get locked in there. And on the other side, Islam comes very overtly. It reproduces itself through biological reproduction. Look at Western Europe, what's happening there. Through sheer biological reproduction, they are advancing in Europe, moving. Now England, they say, has become so Islamicized. There's a new name for London, which is eventually going to be coined by the Muslims as Londonistan because of the profusion of Muslims increasing there. Because Islam challenges the core tenets of Christianity. Islam talks about a God that is not compatible with the Christian notion of God. And there are many Christians who are confused with the God of Islam and the God of Christianity because they say we are all same from the same Abrahamic father. But there's a fundamental issue with it. The God of Islam is not the God of Christianity because Islamic God is called monadic. He's just an entity. There is no diversity in him. And on the other hand, the Christian God is monotheistic, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I'll get into that a little deeper in the, in the education time. All religions are superficially the same, but fundamentally they contradict each other. That you want to keep in mind. They appear to be superficially same because they talk about gods and goddesses and hell and heaven and spirituality. So in that sense, there is a superficial similarity, but there is fundamental contradictions. What the Hindu says about God is not what the Christian says. What the Muslim says about God is not what the Muslim, what the Buddhists say. They all differ in their perceptions of God. So we are living in a religiously pluralistic culture in which the challenges for Christians are unique, especially in America, because you have the liberal movement in our country which doesn't want to challenge other faiths, but rather there is a very subtle expectation in the name of maintaining peace. They want to sacrifice truth. They'll say, you, you know what? The most important thing is to live in peace. I get that. But in the name of maintaining peace, you cannot afford to sacrifice truth. You see, truth is more important than peace. In fact, you will never actually have peace without knowing what truth is. Because peace is not a concept. It is not a practice. It is not an idea. You know what peace is? 
Because, you know, the, the reason I say that is because many, there are, there are endless conventions and seminars and conferences and organizations in our world today which has seminars on peace and uh, conferences on peace. And they have no idea how to obtain this because peace is not an idea. It's not a proposition. It's not a practice. Peace is actually a person. You know the name of Jesus in the Old Testament? One of the names for Jesus? Prince of Peace. You will not have any peace without the Prince. You'll only have pieces. But no peace. So endless debate on peace will never get you peace without Accepting the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace is the truth. No wonder in John 14 he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is more important than peace because without truth there's no peace. But in our religiously pluralistic culture, people are willing to sacrifice truth for the sake of peace. Why? Because they simply want to coexist and not challenge the status quo of the culture. But we Christians are called upon to make a defense for the hope that is within you. You know why I say that is so important? Because right now, as you sit in this room, comfortably in a wonderful building like this, there are scores of people in Iraq, in Syria, in Africa, in India, giving their lives for Jesus. Just last week, on Easter, there was a bomb explosion in Lahore, Pakistan, killing 70-plus Christians on the spot. Can you imagine watching little children's blown in smithereens on a Sunday morning service? Because you are Christian. And we in America get to enjoy a peaceful Sunday morning service while our brothers and sisters around the world are risking their lives for the cause of Jesus. And how dare we can sacrifice that truth for the sake of seemingly peace in our culture today without making a case for who Jesus is. Religious pluralism. Then there is Christian inclusivism in this idea that are Christians who say, well, we have to be so tolerant. Why not, why not adopt some practices from other religions? And there are churches which has embraced Islam into Christianity and merged into a new practice called Chrislam. So they borrow ideas from Islam, borrow ideas from Christianity, fuse them together, and they are willing to even practice such a thing on a Sunday morning services. That's called Christian inclusivism, where they don't find the need to have any convictions of who Christ is, but they're willing to borrow ideas from other religions and create a new religion, including inclusivistic, seems to be very appealing to the crowds at large because they say, well, why not borrow all ideas from other religions? So they'll borrow ideas from Hinduism, from Buddhism, and from Islam, and fuse into a new religion, Christian inclusivism with no regard for the exclusivity of who Jesus Christ is. And there are many such moments 
and churches in our culture today. I saw a church where I went, and the, and the mission statement of the church was, we are all in a journey together. We haven't arrived at truth yet. And I thought to myself, I get the first line, yeah, we are all on a journey, but we do know the truth. We do know the truth. It is that you are suppressing the truth. You are rejecting the truth. You are not willing to make a claim. You're not willing to stand up for the truth, but rather you are just willing to let it go in the name of peace. It's very subtle. Think about that. Willing to sacrifice truth for the sake of peace. Thirdly, Christian exclusivism. Religious pluralism, Christian inclusivism, which draws, which draws in other religions. And then there is Christian exclusivism. And this movement is we. We are the ones who believe in the exclusive nature of who Jesus is. And we're the ones who get hated in our society today. How dare you say you know the way to truth and not us? We are exclusivists because we believe in the exclusive claims of who Jesus is. Haven't you ever pondered on this verse in John chapter 14, verse 5, and Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is a profound revelation that surrounds it. Even in the way Jesus said it. Very often times, we just kind of glibly read the Bible and we just pass on this and those verses. If you pay attention to the way those, those lines are arranged, the way those words are arranged, this profound revelation in that, I'll just give you a sneak peek into that. Why did Jesus say, I'm the way first? And then he said, truth. And then he said, life. Why did he put way first, truth second, and life third? Is there, a, is there a progression in that? Is, is there something in that? Here's how you can look at it. Way, truth, life. It seems to me there are innumerable ways in this world to God. People talk about multiple ways, different ways. All right, let's grant that. Even if there are many ways to pursue God and those ways lead you to an idea of truth, because religions will tell you they have shades of truth. Even if an apparent way seems to lead you to an apparent truth, the litmus test is this. Does it lead you to life? Even if you say you have a way, and it seems that way is pointing to some shades of truth, the litmus test is, does it lead you to life? That's where Jesus triumphs. He says, guys, I'm not just the way. I'm not just the truth. When you know me and the truth, I actually lead you into life. Meaning, I have defeated death. That is, when you die, you don't really die. You get to live with me. Who 
can ever say such words. I haven't seen any religious leader say that. I haven't seen Muhammad say that. I haven't seen any other religious proponent say that. Only Jesus can say that. In fact, it seems like Jesus is having fun with Martha when Lazarus was dead. Martha saying, Lord, I wish you were here. And when the Lord gets to know the news, he actually tarries extra two days. It's like, yeah, I know he's dead. I'll deal with it. Like, Lord, I mean, he's dead. He's not sick. He's actually dead. But the Lord tarries a little more. It is actually the Lord is saying, let him be really dead. <laughs> there was a legend in the ancient Jewish culture that they believed uh, that the soul was still moving around and, and after three days, and that's when that soul leaves the body. And so had the Lord come a little early, they could have somehow justified and said, well, the soul was around and it got in. The Lord is very wise in the way he does it. And then he says to Martha, he will rise again. And Martha says, yeah, I know, on the, on, on the last day. Oh, no, 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 you have no idea what you're talking about. Me, you are looking at the one who is the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. You're looking at me. And then he pronounces those powerful words. He says, Lazarus, one theologian put it this way, had the Lord simply called out with no name, all the dead would have come out. <laughs> right? <laughs> he specifically called only Lazarus. And he walks out. Who can do such a thing? That is why the Lord says, hey, I'm not only the way, not only the truth, I'm life. I've actually messed with your death. <laughs> I have defeated it. I hold the keys of death and Hades. I've taken it away from Satan. Death will come. Woody Allen once said, um, it's not that I'm afraid of death, but the fact that I'm going to be there when I die, that scares me. <laughs> it's amazing why Jesus said things the way he said. Religious pluralism, Christian inclusivism, which loses the perspective and then there is Christian exclusivism in which we carry forth the exclusive claims of who Jesus is. And I said all these three uh, ideas and, and, and concepts, they, they resonate with these four questions. I have to be fast because I'll, I'll, I maybe I'll, take, I'll talk a little bit more about this in the other teaching time. See, the origin of man, the condition of man, salvation of man, and destination. Origin, condition, salvation, destination are very powerful concepts and questions to ask. All religions have to answer the question of how was the origin of man? What is the origin of man? And what is the condition of man today? What's the salvation plan of man today? What's the destination of man today? Even as profoundly the very question of the origin of man. Where did man come from? 
How does, how does Hinduism define it? Hinduism says man actually came out from the body parts of gods and goddesses. There's no clear definition of how man was made. Even Islam doesn't tell you how man was made. It's, there's a very bizarre explanation in, in Islam that it says that man was formed out of blood clots. To, to this very day, I don't understand what that is all about. Only in Christianity you see a clear picture of how man was made. Isn't it marvelous and majestic to read in the book of Genesis that when God made everything, God spoke into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be sun, there was sun. Everything God spoke, and it happened. Now, for a moment you can think about this. Couldn't have God said, let there be Adam, and Adam could have popped out. He could have done that. He was God, and he just created everything by his spoken word. And I thought to myself, why he didn't do that? He could have said, Adam be, and Adam would have just stood there. That's the only place in the Genesis you read, God, the Trinity, talking among themselves. You know what? We, we, we can actually speak man into existence, but let's make him. <laughs> let's make him. God went to work in making man. He didn't speak him into existence. He made him. Took a lump of clay, fashioned it into the most amazing sculpture, into that hulk of a man <laughs> that Adam would have looked. And then he breathed his very breath into his nostrils. And then he became a living being. God invested his dignity, his prestige, himself into man. And now as you sit here, every time you exhale and inhale the air, you are still breathing that primordial breath that God breathed into Adam. What a wonder that is. Because God in the heavens can just like this snuff you out. Or he can let you live. The air that you breathe, air that you take in, and it's coming from God. That primordial breath that made Adam a living being. It's a majestic picture that you and I are made in the very image of God. Invested dignity. Only Christianity has this. No other religion has this. And that is why in Christianity, we don't see color, ethnicity, background. We are all children of God. God has no grandsons, as you know, or granddaughters, so to speak. Every place in the world, those who profess their faith in Jesus come into one regal royal family called the family of Jesus. Every tribe, every tongue shall praise him on that glorious day. Only in Christianity, you as an individual have worth and dignity, even this morning, if you ever think of yourself in low self-esteem, it's about time to kick that self-pity out of your life.
out because it doesn't matter who doesn't like you or don't like you. They're only humans, dispensable. What really matters, whether God likes you or not, and the, and the good news for you, ladies and gentlemen, God actually likes you. <laughs> not only that he likes you, he loves you. And furthermore, he has actually drawn you in the palm of his hand. Scripture says, he's graven us in the palm of his hand. And the greatest hallmark card you will ever find is not in Barnes and Nobles, it's in the book of Isaiah. God writes his Valentine card for you and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Yeah, I can't get better than that. <laughs> One of my uh, friends uh, had a very creative moment uh, and she coined a phrase. She said, uh, you are God's selfie. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. It's amazing. It's profound. It's majestic as you pour deeper into the realities of the Christian world, the Christian convictions, the Christian message. And this is the reason why we can be excited about this, to talk about this, because we do have something to give to the others. And everybody outside of Christianity, no matter how they are, where they are, how much money they made, they are all still in despair. Let me close with this, because lack of time. And these are complex subjects. Uh, takes a lot of time to get into these subjects, uh, but I'll close with a wonderful story. A father wanted to read a magazine, but he was being bothered by his little daughter, Melody. Finally, in exasperation, he tore a sheet out of his magazine on which was printed the map of the world. Tearing it into small pieces, he gave it to her and said, go into the other room and see if you can put this together. After a few minutes, she returned and handed him the map, correctly fitted together. He was surprised and astonished, and he asked her, how did you do this so quickly? Oh, she said, on the other side of the paper is a picture of Jesus. When I got all of Jesus back where he belonged, then the world came together. <laughs> when I got all of Jesus back where he belonged, then the world came together. If you bring Jesus to where he belonged, the world will be back together. God bless you.